Morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving to you. It is great to be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. We don't take it for granted that you reveal yourself to us, that you mold us and shape us, that you continue to transform us. And we pray that our time together today that is remaining will accomplish just those things. We pray for the sake of your glory. Amen. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Romans chapter 7. And as you do, I want to show you my highlighter. This is a highlighter. It's not just any highlighter. It is a 3M post-it note flag highlighter. It is the Mercedes-Benz of highlighters. I use this highlighter all the time. I'm actually out of flags currently. I need to get a refill. I use it when I study uh, to highlight things in the books that I read or to put flags on the pages that I want to come back to at a later time. What is the purpose of a highlighter? When you use it, A highlighter brings the words that you highlight into sharp contrast with the words around them. It doesn't block the words out that you highlight so that you can't see them anymore. Instead, it draws your attention to those words. The yellow ink on the page actually points you to a reality behind the highlight itself. It points you to some specific ideas. A highlighter functions like a spotlight. It says, look at this. Pay attention to this. This thing that is highlighted is important. We have a lot of sorts of markers in our society that really function like highlighters, don't we? Things that serve to provide contrast to the things around them. Things that you look at and you say, well, that is just there to point to a greater reality that is behind it. I wonder if you can think of highlighters in our society. First thing that I think about is when you approach an intersection that's particularly busy or dangerous and you see one of those yellow flashing lights. That yellow flashing light is not there to say, hey, look at this pretty light. (laughs) It's actually there to point you to a greater reality behind the light. This intersection is different than normal intersections that you go through. Pay attention. The light functions like a highlighter. What else could you think of? I can think of another example being the big stone pillars that flank the driveway of a private country club. They're beautiful in their own right, but they serve to highlight something. That this driveway that you're about to go down is different than the other neighborhoods around here. This driveway that you're about to go down is different than the other businesses around here. What happens down this driveway is unique. It's special. It's for a certain type of person, for a certain type of class. The stone columns serve as a highlighter. I'm sure you can think of dozens of others, and maybe the rest of the day you can be thinking about those things while you're watching the Browns. Try again. And, but as, as, more importantly, we turn our attention to the book of Romans, chapter 7, we see that the Apostle Paul gives a similar description of the law of God and how it relates to Christians who are living this new life in Jesus Christ. He's written about 
the transferring work of Jesus. When he forgives us of our sins, he moves us from the realm of Adam to the realm of Christ. The realm of Adam that is marked by sin that leads to death. The realm of Christ that is marked by grace that is given to you freely through faith in him that moves to righteousness and thus eternal life. He's talked about to this point in Romans chapter 6, how when we have new life in Christ, what that really means is that we're united with him, spiritually speaking, and that we are dead to sin, but we're alive to God. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we become slaves to God, and now he turns our attention to how these ideas of dead to sin, alive to God, no longer slaves to sin, but a slave to God, how does that relate to the law? And so with that, let's read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 together. Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by, bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are, were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In verse 1, Paul indicates that he is honing in now in this progress of remaking people, he wants to talk specifically to those who know the law. That is, the Jews who are part of this church in Rome who have now put their faith in Christ. There's a particular concern among the Jewish people in this church. Now remember, the New Testament church is made up of non-Jewish people who put their faith in Christ. We call them Gentiles who become Christians. And Jewish people who become converted 
from the Old Testament law to faith in Christ. And the concern is that many of those Jewish people are still trying to actively follow the law and live in faith to Christ. And moreover, some of them are saying to their Gentile friends, hey, you should follow the law too. I.e., you should become Jewish so that you can become a Christian. And Paul just finishes talking to them about, or writing to them, about this wonderful transference that Jesus does. That when you put your faith in him, he forgives you of your sin, he moves you into his realm, you're dead to your slavery to sin. And now you become a slave to righteousness, a slave to God. And so when you hear that phrase, become a slave to God, what might the Jews think? Follow the law. You become a slave to God by doing the right things that the law tells you to do. And Paul addresses that directly. And so first to understand what he's talking about, we need to at least have some kind of understanding together about the nature of the Old Testament law. What does Paul mean when he says the law? Well, in the Old Testament, we see the law can have one of two meanings. The first meaning is a more general moral law that all humans have. It's a general sense of right and wrong that you have because God bestows his common grace to all humanity. You're made in God's image. Everybody is. You have a a level of conscience that helps you have a moral compass in this life, and that is a general sense of a moral law. But more specifically than that, and specifically here in the book of Romans, we find the second use of the term law, And it refers to the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses, sometimes referred to as the Mosaic law. It's talked about throughout the whole Old Testament. And many of you know that the Old Testament consists of the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or the law, and then the rest called the prophets, the law and the prophets. And this law can be summed up with ten commandments. But more than those Ten Commandments, the law actually has 613 individual commandments to it. 613. Some are food laws, some are purity laws, some are laws of conduct. And you might summarize the Old Testament law to say, this is the way that God told his people to interact with him and to interact with other people around them. Of the 613 commandments, they're divided into negative commandments and positive commandments. 365 negative commands that the Jews often would say correspond with the 365 days of the solar year. And these commandments range from a variety of things. For example, do not derive benefit from idols and their accessories. Deuteronomy 7.6. Do not let Moabite and Ammonite males marry into the Jewish people. Deuteronomy 23, 4. 365 negative do not types of commands. But there's also positive commands and descriptions. For example, 248 of them. And of those 248, the Jews would often correspond them, say they corresponded with the major bones and organs in the body. And that would help them remember the number. And these commandments range through a variety of things, like a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. 
Leviticus 12, 12. Or honor those who teach and know the Torah, Leviticus 19.32. So that just gives you a little bit of a taste of what Paul is talking about when he mentions the law. You can imagine that for the Jew who took this law very seriously, this must have weighed very heavily upon them. If they wanted to interact with God in a way that was pleasing to him and interact with each other in a way that was pleasing to God, but that there were 613 individual commandments to follow, do you think it's possible that one person could actually obey them all? Of course not. Of course not. And yet this was exactly the way that God expected them to relate to him. So if the law is impossible to keep, why did God give it to his people? And that raises a question for Paul. Verse 7, what should we say then? That the law is sin? And then he goes on to give three effects of this law to answer that very question. Three reasons why God gave the law to the people and how it relates to this new life in Christ. So let's look at them together. The first effect of the law is that it teaches us about sin. Verse 7 indicates it's pretty straightforward and true. It says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. God continued to progressively reveal himself to his people throughout the Old Testament. Through this law, he regularly showed them that he was not a moral relativist. That a God of eternal being, and by having eternal being, he has a perfect eternal standard by which things are measured. It always baffles me when I find somebody who says that they believe in God, but then so quickly say God doesn't care what people do or how they act, as if he's a moral relativist. Those people haven't thought very carefully about what it means to be an eternal deity and to have the perspective of eternity before you. Anyone who thinks seriously about God perceives that there would be a standard of right and of wrong. And the law communicates that standard and thus shows us what sin really is. So the first effect of the law is that it teaches us about sin. The second is that the law actually provokes sin. Look with me at verse 5. Paul writes... For while we were still living in the flesh, that is, before we put our faith in Christ, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our sinful passions within us aroused by the law, he says. Look down at verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me to be death. So what he's saying is that our sinful propensities within us, the sin that we all have, that we all struggle with, 
The sin nature that we inherit from our father Adam and become enslaved to that leads us to death, these things are aroused and even highlighted by the law. Let's bring that down to a practical level that we all know to be true. This is why you feel the desire to rebel even though it doesn't make any sense for you to rebel. This is why when you see a sign that says no shooting, it is very often filled with bullet holes. (laughs) This is why I know, I know in my mind that it is very good for me to floss my teeth. And I still don't do it regularly. And I'm not so sure that my dentist does either. (laughs) This is why when I told my five-year-old just yesterday, she is the most strong-willed of the three children, not to go upstairs during nap time when the other kids were sleeping. The second, just two minutes later, I turned my back and boom, she was gone. Doing the exact thing I told her not to do. When we are placed under law, our sinful desires prompt us to rebel. And I think that is something that all of us can relate to. Even those of you who are really good rule followers overall have all sensed at some time the desire to rebel, even when it didn't make really any sense for you to do so. And this is why, by the way, that a form of Christian moralism or Christian legalism, and by that I mean the idea that we need to add a bunch of rules to what the Bible says, this is why Christian legalism does not work. Because at the end of the day, legalism does either one of two things to people. It either makes grand hypocrites of its proponents who look really good on the outside but on the inside are just as depraved and rebellious as the rest of us, or it leaves the proponent of legalism with a tremendous amount of guilt because there is no way that they can possibly live up to all the rules or standards that are placed in front of them within the system. And so here the law has a greater purpose. The law serves... As a highlighter. Remember what a highlighter does? It grabs your attention and it brings contrast to the scene around it. A highlighter points to a reality beyond what it highlights. And what the law highlights is perhaps one of the most foundational realities of your human experience. And it is this. You are not God. The law highlights the reality that you are not God. He is so different than you. He is perfect. In every way. He is righteous. He is pure. He is clean. And the contrast that the law provides is that you aren't even close 
and I'm not even close. There's nothing that we can do to be good enough to get closer. (laughs) And because those 613 commandments are impossible for us to completely follow under our own power, we see clearly the fact that we are not God. He's different than us. And once you come to that realization, that there's nothing I can do to reach God, that there's no way that I could possibly fulfill all 613 commandments, and the fact that they're there just highlights really how far I am away from God, the reality of the law begins to press down on us like a weight or begins to box us in like a prison cell because of its heavy demands and because of my repeated striving and my repeated failure. When you come to that realization, what is the natural conclusion? I need someone to save me. I can't save myself. I stand condemned under this law of perfection. I need a savior. And that leads to the third effect of the law. That Paul, after talking about how the law provokes sin, actually brings us to the precipice of spiritual death itself, he then concludes in verse 12 by saying it's actually holy. This law is good and righteous because it shows us the character of God and the need for a savior. We might summarize it this way. Union to the Lord that brings life, that's the Lord Jesus, union to the Lord that brings life releases us from the condemnation of the law that brings death. Jesus brings spiritual life. The law brings spiritual death. Union to the one who gives life releases us from the one that brings us to death. And so if we are slaves to God as he says at the end of Romans chapter 6, then this slavery in the realm of Christ must be marked by a life of grace, not by a life of rules. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to please God with your life. It doesn't mean that the law isn't important, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But it is marked by being united to the one who did fulfill the law completely, who was completely righteous, the one who can give this new life. And so what is our position then in this law? How are we positioned to the law in Christ? And this is where Paul starts the chapter. Chapter seven, verses one through three, he uses this simple analogy of marriage. A wife is not bound to her husband when he dies. We all know that. Verse four, likewise, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. You're no longer bound by the 613 commandments because you're bound to the one who has fulfilled them all. What does that mean for us today? Does it mean that we should not care about the law anymore? Quite the opposite. 
it reminds us that the Old Testament law comes from God. It bears his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, and his character. Now, it drives me crazy when I hear Christians say, well, since we live in the post-New Testament time, I only read the New Testament. The law itself helps us to see who God really is and who we really are. And we're on this side of the cross, and so we have to deal with some of the negative sides of the law, if you will. But that does not mean that we should doubt that it is indeed a wonderful revelation of God. Even though we're not under its direct authority today, it still points us to his holy character. It reminds us, and we need reminding of that highlighted reality that we are not God. (laughs) Because so often we're tempted to live like we are. But beyond that, think about this with me. If Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, the people that God chose to reveal himself to, and chose to make himself known to the world through, if that people Israel, who had undeniable blessings from God, as they were delivered out of slavery from Egypt with ten plagues and the parting of the sea, a destiny that was moving toward enslavement for generations, but God blessed them incredibly and delivered them. And then he took them into the wilderness where he gave them this law. And they were miraculously led by God in supernatural ways. And they experienced a unique nearness of God as he was with them and led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And he gave them a new land. And as he brought them up to the edge of this promised land, he again miraculously parted the sea so they could cross. And in that land, they fought armies that were much bigger than theirs, and they conquered fortified cities, all that God gave to them by way of his blessing. He was near to them. He loved them. And it was undeniable. If those people who had that unique nearness to God still did not follow the law, but regularly rebelled against it and against God, then how deep is the problem of sin that all of humanity must struggle with? What the history of Israel illustrates is the inability of humankind to obey God of our own accord. All of Israel, with all of her blessings, couldn't do it. Then you can't do it either. You need a savior. Most people attempt to live their life by some kind of moral code. Sometimes it's coherent. (laughs) Often it's not, particularly in our time with our sort of propensity to buffet-style spirituality. Take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Sometimes the moral code lines up with God's moral law. Sometimes it does not. But what Romans 7 teaches us is that pure obedience to God's moral law is not possible. (laughs) And so we appreciate the need for the Savior all the more. One who is perfect. One who has completely fulfilled the law 
and one who unites himself to us. One who allows us to have fruit for God, as it says in verse 4. That's the same fruit for God that he talked about in being a slave to God in chapter 6, verse 22. You've now been set free from sin. You've become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We need a savior. (laughs) We need Jesus. Union to the Lord of life releases us from condemnation to the law of death. Or put it the other way around if you want. If you're bound by the law which leads you to death, you definitely need the Lord which will lead you to life. (laughs) And Jesus is that one. It's the great call of the gospel for men and women, for boys and girls. And it's tough. It's tough to understand the dynamic between law and grace because all of us in our own ways choose to to revert to the things that we can externally see and know. Law. And even though that law wells up within us, our sinful desires cause us to rebel, that type of structure is still important to our human existence. And yet, I think of the story of Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago in the early 1900s. And he tells this great story about law and grace. And I close with it today. He says, some years ago I had a little school for young Indian men and women who came to my home in Oakland, California from the various tribes of northern Arizona. And one of these was a Navajo young man who was unusually keen and intelligent. One Sunday evening, he went with me to our young people's meeting, and they were talking about the epistle of the Galatians, and the special subject was law and grace. They were not very clear about it. (laughs) And finally, one of them turned to the Indian, and he said, I wonder whether or not our Indian friend has anything to say about this. And so the young man rose to his feet and cleared his throat, and he said, well, my friends... I've been listening very carefully because I am here to learn all that I can in order to take it back to my people. I do not understand all that you are talking about, and I do not think you yourselves understand it either. (laughs) But concerning this law and grace business, let me see if I can make it clear. I think it is like this. When Mr. Ironside brought me from my house, we took the longest railroad journey I ever took. We got out in Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station and the hotel I have ever seen. And I walked all around, and I saw at one end a sign that said, Do not spit here. I looked at the sign, and then looked down at the ground, and saw many had spitted there. And before I can think what I'm doing, I myself have spitted there as well. Isn't that a strange thing? When the sign says, do not spit here. I come to Oakland, and I go to the home of a lady who invited me to dinner today. And I am in the nicest home I've ever been in. Such beautiful furniture and carpets. I hate to step on them. I sank down into a comfortable chair, and the lady said, Now, John, you sit there while I go and see whether the maid has dinner ready. I look around at the beautiful pictures, the grand piano, and I walk around these rooms in amazement. 
I'm looking for a sign. And the sign I'm looking for is, do not spit here. But I look around those two beautiful drawing rooms, and I cannot find a sign like this. And so I think to myself, what a pity when this is such a beautiful home to have people spitting all over it. Too bad they don't put up a sign. So I look all over at the carpet. But I cannot find that anybody have spitted here. What a queer thing. Where the sign says, do not spit, a lot of people have spitted. There was no, where there's no sign at all, in that beautiful home, nobody spitted. Now I understand. That sign is law. But inside the home is grace. They love their beautiful home. And they want to keep it clean. They do not need a sign to tell them to do so. I think that this explains the law and grace business. If you're here today and you are a Christian, (laughs) you put your faith in Christ, then you know that being united to the Lord of life releases you from condemnation to the law of death. If you have not yet put your faith in Christ, then you stand under the law that continues to arouse sinful desires in you, that continues to lead you down a path that ultimately leads to death. And one of the greatest gifts that God gives to his people is being released from the law and brought into the realm of his son, a realm of grace and forgiveness that leads to life. I would encourage you today, if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, don't wait a moment longer. Don't live under that heavy burden and yoke, but live in the free grace that God gives.